This inaugural episode is dedicated to the memory of my mentor and friend, Raymond Fonseca. You, sir, are missed. Fortune favors the bold. And welcome to A New Order of Things. I'm your host, Eddie Killian, and this is a weekly podcast where creating conversations and community around building winning individuals and organizations is our goal. I figured that the best topic for the first episode should be about what events brought me to creating this podcast. So, without further ado, here we go. By noon on Tuesday, February 8th of 2017, all the experiences and the skills that I'd acquired throughout my life had started to coalesce. I was working for a medium-sized oil and gas construction company headquartered in Durango, Colorado, where I had started three years earlier as a part-time safety technician. I was the guy that stood on a catwalk 200 feet up the side of some tank or container or silo or giant cylinder waiting to become an impromptu rocket filled with flammable or caustic or explosive or near instantaneous and painful death causing gas or any combination of those listed insidious things. Well, all the while, hoping something doesn't happen to the workers that are inside the said hellhole, which could have required my rescue expertise. Oh, and all performed overnight and usually in a snowstorm and or at least some sort of torrential rain or wind. I had worked my way through the organization and was currently a full-timer that had been promoted to the darkest depths of cubicleism. It was, it was less than optimal. The entrance to my little spot of darkness required a person entering to perform a button hook turn around the wall, and this not-so-well-thought-out combination of wall height and entry design gave no hint that someone was about ready to enter my space until they were a foot from my face. It was on this Tuesday somewhere around 8 a.m. that the director of our safety program performed the required button hook and suddenly appeared in my little cave. It was his first visit. Raymond was surprised at how small and gloomy the corporate quality control quality assurance manager and project manager estimator's workspace was and let me know with a little snark and a chuckle. Raymond, a Texan of Hispanic descent, was average in size, in no way portly, but a fair paunch stressed his belt. He wore brown leather Timberland loafers, saving the discomfort of steel-toed boots for the field. Ray had retired from the oil and gas industry twice, and this was his third go-around. He knew no other industry, and it showed. Red Adair ain't got nothing on this guy. After quick morning pleasantries, he let me know that the reason for his visit was to notify me that I was being summoned to appear before the organization's president in his office, and I had never been there before. Uh Uh-oh. We entered his hallowed, brightly lit, window-lined office. It's a far cry from my blind little button-hook cubicle entrance. I sat in one of two firm, leather-covered chairs stationed across the expansive desk from the man. He sat, chair pushed away from his desk, elbows on his knees, and smartphone in hand as he read texts and replied. Raymond sat next to me in my chair's twin, and... As I can guess from past meetings, this sharp-nosed, round-faced, and dark-haired man was clad in $150 jeans and $1,500 custom cowboy boots. 
He's tall, at well over six feet, and built like a first-string lineman. Even folded over behind his desk, he anchored the room. There were footsteps behind me, and I knew them to be the senior vice president, and he stopped in the doorway. A solid 45 seconds after our arrival, the president looked up and acknowledged my existence with, Eddie, I keep hearing that there isn't anything you can't do. Skipping a short beat, he continued, Would you be interested in building a corporate-wide program to satisfy the demands of our biggest customer, Chevron? He motioned to Raymond, who handed me two pieces of paper with Chevron header, saying, This is all the information we have concerning the program. With a quick scan of the wrinkled pages, I saw Chevron was expecting a program based on human performance. I'd never heard of that. And some little tidbit about mitigating hazards of high risks and stopping drift. I had no idea what they meant by that. Though I had no idea how I was going to go about doing this, I followed the advice of Sir Richard Branson. Say yes and figure it out later. I promptly said, yes. From the doorway, the senior vice president asks, when can you go live with the program? <laughs> Taking a mild pause of um, internal prayer, and under the guise of turning around to speak to him direct, July 1. In those two seconds that I had turned around, I decided that six months sound, would sound way too long, and less than five months in the beginning of Q3 seemed like it would sound well. Pretty good. Excellent, he answered. I looked to the president. I do have one question. What is my budget? Turning back to his folded phone and his pose that he had originally started, and without even a glance, whatever it takes. Thereby signaling the end of our little conversation. So with that, Raymond and I left the office and I walked back to my little purplishly blue cave and started reading Chevron's minimal information. By noon, I had sent multiple emails to my connections in our Texas office where most of our Chevron work occurred at the time and had them getting more information about the current Chevron program. It was noon when I received confirmation that more collected information was on its way via FedEx overnight. By Friday afternoon, I had collected enough information about the Chevron program called Verification and Validation, or VNV. I had a good handle on how the processes mitigated significant injury or fatality, what they call SIF, in the field and what metrics and data were being gathered and how it needed to be monitored. The idea of VNV is to perform verification that the work is being performed in the field to a standard and validated of the worker's knowledge of what to do and why. Tasks which, during their performance, may include errant actions or events that result in unintended SIF outcomes to the worker, equipment, or the business are quickly defined and succinctly, maybe even a little morbidly, as the high-stakes tasks that can put you in the hospital or the morgue. As I researched, I found the reasoning behind Chevron's push for this program. Being in the inherently dangerous business of extracting crude oil from the ground, Chevron's leadership identified 15 high-risk tasks performed in the field. Examples include working at heights or working around and digging in excavations, lifting, rigging, and working in areas with H2S gas exposure potential. Chevron was able to identify that a defined set of training and supporting resources was required to assist the workers to perform safe work in a way that, should an unexpected event occur, like a crane falling on your head, the hazards would be mitigated. 
Wanting to grow these processes and make the oil field a safer work environment, Chevron expanded this implementation of the VMP processes into their mid-continent business unit. And this business unit saw immediate safety improvements upon implementation of the program. Leaders made the decision that meant to mandate that all subcontractors utilize these systems as well. Chevron held quarterly meetings where all the bigwigs of the business partners would hear all about what was going on. At one of these business partner safety improvement council meetings, the plan for all the partners to start their own internal VMV programs was announced. After a few months of hemming and hawing about how to implement a program like this, Chevron had called out our company for not having moved forward with the implementation fast enough. And this was why I was called into the office on that Tuesday morning. Drift was originally defined by Diane Vaughn in 1994 as being the normalization of deviance. Since Vaughn's introduction of the idea, significant research and written word have been produced on the topic. But this has been aimed at Drift's presence and effects on whole organizations. Notable examples of organizational drift are NASA with both the Challenger and the Columbia catastrophes, Enron's epic deterioration, Three Mile Island accident, and numerous infrastructure fails, plane crashes, and the gross inabilities for government entities to see a massive terrorist attack in the making. But researchers have spent little effort studying the areas where drift is first recognizable. The frontline worker. When workers drift, it happens slowly. On day one of a new hire's entry into the field, they follow all the required processes to the letter, meeting the 100% organizational target. But... By the end of their first year, that same worker has drifted all the way down to about, oh, 30% of the required organizational target. This happens prolifically across business and industry. It makes no difference. It's in the oil field, your local big box retailer, where you bank, and among the workers at your favorite restaurant. None of these workers or their leaders recognize it. Liken this to the toad in the pot. You know, you put Mr. Toad in a pot of boiling water and he jumps out faster than his wild ride. But if you put Mr. Toad in a pot of cold water and ever so slowly turn up the heat, you get dead Mr. Toad. To combat drift, Chevron looked to the recently created human performance ideals. Human performance became a thing after the Three Mile Island accident in 1979. But it took the Department of Energy almost 30 years of study and research to release a pair of handbooks about it. Using many of the ideas gleaned from the DOE's work, Chevron leadership decided that keeping drift from occurring in the oil field required a defined path, outlined via checklists, and a book full of information about how to get to the desired end. They call this the Managing Safe Work Handbook. A collection of field coaches who observed the work being performed and supported the proper performance and the use of the MSW, or Managing Safe Work document, and its checklists. Effectively, Chevron personnel created these checklists to be used prior to the start of work to identify high-threat activities within the task, modeled after checklists like pilots use before every flight. These basic ideas of V&V that Chevron mandated were good. Really good but I felt much more could be done for our organization through this safety program. It could be an operational excellence program, a change management process, and a corporate change system. But how? Hmm. So I began reading everything I could find on human behavior. Piles of investigations on train wrecks and plane crashes and ship collisions, engineering failures, oodles of research papers on everything from cognitive process to chaos theory, scores of books, 
well over 100. One of those books, thankfully at the beginning of the list, was Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit, which includes a story about the positive organization change that Paul O'Neill, an obscure lawyer who soon became CEO of Alcoa, created unintended culture change using safety as the foot in the door. In 1987, O'Neill came into his CEO position hot and heavy with safety as the main thing. During his introduction to Wall Street investors and analysts, O'Neill stunned and scared the lot when he said, I intend to make Alcoa the safest company in America. And he didn't talk about shareholder dividends or how he was going to expand into new markets like all the other incoming CEOs do. He spoke to safety. Nobody talks about safety. Some moments later, O'Neill gave an overview of his plan. If you, the shareholders, want to understand how Alcoa is doing, you need to look at the workplace safety figures. If we bring our injury rates down, it won't be because of cheerleading or the nonsense you sometimes hear from CEOs. It will be because the individuals at this company have agreed to become part of something important. They've devoted themselves to creating a habit of excellence. Safety will be an indicator that we're making progress in changing our habits across the institution. That's how we should be judged. Within a year of that speech, and contrary to common belief, Alcoa's profits hit an all-time high, and incidents, accidents, and deaths were at an all-time low. But it did hit me that utilizing these proven VNV safety programs as the foundation was the missing piece to corporate changing initiatives that usually have approximately a 70% failure rate, at least for the past 14 years. I began to incorporate these VNV safety processes and added culture change processes such as heightened communication and up and down the hierarchy. I built a customized leadership training and mentorship program for all employees. The VNV field coaches became cheerleaders too. They would take pictures of crews going on the extra mile or adapting the performance to be safer and more efficient than expected. I would give them accolades and post the pictures in the weekly newsletter that I published. We called it the Operations Excellent Newsletter. Very original. I know. The newsletter brought consistent and common communication to all employees every Monday. I was able to finagle guest submittals from the president and the vice president and key divisional leaders every other week or so. I also created an email account outside of the corporate servers. Thank you, Gmail. This allowed employees the freedom to submit ideas like improvement or adaptations to the Managing Safe Work document. This email address, more importantly, allowed employees' concerns about coworkers and leaders not following the processes to be aired without repercussions. I replied to each message and fixed or worked to adapt hotspots as needed. Taking a lead from law enforcement special operations community, I created a one-inch circular sticker that our employees could put on their hard hats. The only thing on the sticker was a number one and an asterisk. This translates to one asterisk, if you think about it. As the VMV coaches met up with crews in the field, they would give every worker a sticker and tell them what it meant and that they only have one asterisk. This always brought laughs and pride to the workers. It meant something. It meant we cared about them as individuals. It was not a corporate advertisement like the other stickers supplied to them. Workers en masse placed the stickers in prominent places on their hard hats, and if a worker replaced a hard hat, they would beg for a new sticker. New hires received them in their handbook. Once we had given one to every worker, I created a larger version, three-inch circles, 
and these were installed on the driver and passenger side windows of every vehicle in the fleet. One asked to risk. I recognized early on that the disparate ideas of operational excellence, safety, and culture change do not effectively produce positive and lasting effects on organizations most of the time. So I took full advantage of complete autonomy afforded to me, and it worked. A little bragging here. Um, under my two-and-a-half-year tenure directing this programs, the organization saw $10 million in annual revenue tied directly to our program and shrank employee churn to minimal levels. And I was tasked to scale the systems from the original employee base of about 1,800 to over 8,000 after we were bought by a larger organization. I had created organization-wide morale growth and personal pride amongst the workers. Legacy divisions utilizing these systems collectively experienced only two recordable injuries during this time, down from the once-a-month average prior to the program's implementations, whereas corporate divisions, where these systems were not yet implemented, continued to see the one injury per month average. I tell you this because the experience I gained as I encountered problems that needed answers was great. I was always looking widely across many different disparate processes and systems to get the answers to the questions. I've created this podcast so that this journey of learning that I've had and that I continue, the experimentation and winning technique development can be shared. Why keep it to myself? There's nothing more important than facilitating the empowerment and growth of others. And if you desire to be a part of creating foundational systems that help you and or your organizations reach goals and win, you're in the right place. I have the same desire. Machiavelli, in his 1532 treatise, The Prince, offered up what has become the title of this podcast when he warned, and I quote, It ought to be remembered that there is nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more certain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. I challenge you to join me as we travel this path of what is difficult and perilous and uncertain as we explore introducing a new order of things. I'm your host, Eddie Killian, and this concludes episode one. For exclusive content, notifications of each episode release, and to sign up for my email newsletter, head over to my website, eddiekillian.com. You can click on the link in the show notes below to join the conversation, or contact me directly at interesting at eddiekillian.com. A new order of things is available to listen to completely free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all the other places you choose to find podcasts. Don't forget to click subscribe and leave me a quick review. It helps us grow the program. Oh, and please share a new order of things with friends and coworkers. Make it a great day.